It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. So I just had an interesting experience on live television. I was booked to be on America's Newsroom to talk about uh, the whole COVID issue, the vaccines, who gets them, who doesn't. And we will come back to the substance of that a little later in the podcast. But, you know, live television is a crapshoot. When you're on cable news, you always know, it doesn't matter what you're talking about, who you're talking with, what time you're on, you're always in danger of getting bumped or shortened or truncated or blown out. Um, because of live events. There could be a press conference, something could start late, you thought something could start early, you thought you were fine, Um, and sometimes you have 60 seconds, and sometimes it may be after a delay of 10 minutes or so, they can bring you back, but if the event goes on, and this used to happen like, you know, uh, it used to happen like all the time. I'd be sitting in the chair under the lights, and the producer would say, uh, well, President Trump is... um, he's getting off uh, Air Force One, he might take a couple of questions, or Marine One. And then a couple of questions would turn into a 40-minute press conference, and you'd sit there and they'd say, sorry, we're out of time. That's the nature of the biz, okay? Uh, And it's happened on my show, too, where I have to let people go, or I can't get to them because uh, some live event happened to fall within my hour. So this morning, I knew there was a point to this, right? So this morning, the event, the producer gets in my ear and says, well, we're waiting on an event where the HHS Secretary Alex Azar and Anthony Fauci are going to get their vaccines. And the reason this was more significant than it might seem is this would, these were going to be the first Americans to get the Moderna vaccine. Last week, of course, it was the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, so, I, so, you know, we might have to cut you short. Or, and I'm thinking, okay, you're not just going to cut me short. This thing's going to start. And uh, that's it. I may, as well go, I may as well go find something else to do. But the way it worked out is um, I started to talk to Sandra Smith, the anchor, and then both Azar and Fauci, uh, they took the pictures of it, but we just kept talking. So then it's the sort of thing where you got to fill the time because I can't see it because I'm in my home office, but I know that there, you know, there's like a big box with, let's say, Fauci, and then there's a smaller box with us. And you're kind of providing color commentary. And she was doing a good job of letting me know what was happening. And I would say, well, you know, this is providing the symbolism of these leaders getting it. And this is really important at a time when a lot of people are wary of getting the vaccine. This is a way of saying it's safe. See, here's Anthony Fauci. He's 80 years old. He's getting it. Um, And then they took some sound from Fauci and we just kept talking. So it was nice to be a part of that just as when uh, a New York City nurse was the first American uh, to get the Pfizer vaccine at the Queens Hospital, and then you had the event with Mike Pence last week. Uh, it was just nice to sort of be on hand as the guy who is the sort of the symbol, uh, the doctor who has done this since the Reagan administration, the symbol of battling infectious diseases, got his shot, and you get to talk about it. So that's, sometimes it works out in your favor. I got to get to this. I kind of fell down the rabbit hole here because I talked about it yesterday. Something was off in yesterday's story, and now it stinks to high heaven. This is a piece uh, by this woman who quit her job at Bloomberg and dumped her husband. Her name is Christy Smythe, I guess. I don't know how to pronounce it. And the New York Post did a story about how she had fallen in love with one of the most hated Americans on the planet, a guy by the name of Martin Shkreli, the farmer bro who's doing like a several-year prison term for securities fraud, but he's the guy who thought, well, this would be a pretty cool idea to make some money. I'll jack up the price of an AIDS drug by 5,000% or whatever it was. Anyway, she fell in love with him. She's visiting him in prison. They tell her they love each other. They kiss. 
but she hasn't seen him in a year because of COVID. And she tells, she writes a magazine piece about her story. Well, just one day later, here's a New York Post follow-up. Christy Smites now says she's open to dating other guys now that the farmer bro fraudster unceremoniously gave her the boot through one of his lawyers. So um, she is referring, oh, so Elle magazine is where she wrote this piece. And she was referring to the cold statement that Shkreli gave to the magazine through one of his lawyers when asked to comment about their tale of romance. Mr. Shkreli wishes Miss Smythe the best of luck in her future endeavors. You can tell this was written by a lawyer. Um, and basically, it's over. So Smythe told the Post yesterday that was a classic breakup slash if you fire somebody kind of line. Heartbreaking and really sad. So she had to know that it was kind of over when she wrote this piece. So I think she's trying to milk the last bit of publicity, saying, oh, I, I fell in love with this guy, even though he's a crook. I visit him in prison. It's so heartbreaking. And then, you know, <laughs> the piece comes out, and he's already, like, saying, nice knowing you. See ya. Uh, I, I think she was not completely honest here. I got I to gotta, I gotta say this. She was not completely honest. <laughs> All right. The relevance of this is probably zero, but it did, was a kind of a media sensation, got a lot of attention on Twitter. That is going to bring me to story number one. Washington Post has a piece about President Trump as he continues to contest the election, turning to what's described as a ragtag group of conspiracy theorists, media-hungry lawyers, and other political misfits, I think they're not big fans of uh, the Trump advisors, in a desperate attempt to hold on to power after his election loss. So it is true, I mean, this is undeniable, that the president's inner circle is shrinking in this, his final month in office. President's orbit has grown more extreme as his more mainstream allies, as the Post, including Bill Barr, have declined to endorse his increasingly radical plans to overturn the will of the voters. Trump's official election advisory council now includes a pardoned felon, that would be former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, adherents of the QAnon conspiracy theory, a White House trade advisor, that's Peter Navarro, and a Russian agent's former lover. I just love this sentence. Uh, the latest administration official to head to the exits or fall out of the president's favor after not backing his baseless allegations. That would be Barr. We'll get back to him in a moment. So Trump is now welcoming figures from the political fringe who are giving him optimism and ideas about how to stay in power. So now he's talking about, you know, for a, for a long time it was the legal challenges, the lawsuits. And I said every time I talked about this, every time I wrote about it, the president, like anybody else, has the right, has the legal right to file lawsuits to say that he thinks the election was stolen, it was fraudulent, there were problems in Pennsylvania, there were problems in Michigan, there were problems in Georgia, there were problems in Nevada or Colorado. He had the right to do that. But then he lost all those suits, including two turndowns by the Supreme Court. He's now got one more pending before SCOTUS. But the reason this is written is that there was, you know, I've talked about, I'm sure you followed this, last Friday you had Mike Flynn in there, you had Sidney Powell, who had been squeezed out of the Trump legal team, but now has sort of made a comeback. Um, and you had Rudy calling in, and that's when the, they talked about, well, could we, you know, Flynn's idea of get the military, this is the martial law solution, to supervise a rerun of the elections in key states won by Biden. Well, that's not going to happen. Um, Rudy 
pushing the Homeland Security officials to confiscate and seize the Dominion voting machines, except the federal government has no power to do that. There's no indication, there's no evidence that Dominion did anything wrong. So yesterday, they were back at it again. Uh, Rudy was there uh, in the Oval Office. First, Rudy had his own meeting. Then Trump met with a group of House Freedom Caucus, conservative Republicans, including Congresswoman-elect Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia. She's publicly supported um, the QAnon conspiracy theory, and she's been accused of racism, anti-Semitism in her campaign. Then there was a second meeting with Giuliani, these House lawmakers, and Mike Pence, according to an administration official. Aides said Trump was frantically searching for pathways to reverse his loss. Well, to put it mildly, he's running out of time, folks. Um, And then uh, Trump did a call to the Trump youth organization known as Turning Point USA. This is Charlie Kirk's outfit. Uh, The president says they dropped hundreds of thousands of ballots in each state. It's all documented. The problem is we need a party that's going to fight. We have some great congressmen and women who are doing it. We have others, great fighters. But we won this in a landslide. They know it, and we need backing from, like, the Justice Department and other people have to finally step up. So does that mean that he's going to pressure DOJ um, after tomorrow when Bill Barr officially steps down as attorney general? I don't know. It seems to signal the possibility. One in the landslide, well, all of these fraud cases have failed to show even that he won any of these contested states, the battleground states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Georgia. Senior administration official, you know, they are really distancing themselves in a way that hasn't happened in quite a long time since there was a different cast of characters in the West Wing, uh, telling the Washington Post he is grasping at straws. If you come in and tell him he lost and that it's over, he doesn't want to hear from you. He is looking for people to tell him what he wants to hear. Also yesterday, Trump attacked a conservative judge in Wisconsin who sided against him in one of those election fraud cases. Biden's win has been certified in Wisconsin and upheld by both federal and state courts. So this all revolves around Barr because Barr held this news conference yesterday and he was to announce another indictment in the Lockerbie bombing. I mean, I covered this in 1988. It was absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, it brought back really sad memories when Pan Am 103 was blown up in midair. And I was a young reporter uh, in New York and I had a call. This is the worst thing you have to do ever in journalism having to call family members after a tragedy that just happened, saying, I understand your son, your daughter, your sister was on the list. We want to talk about it. And it's fascinating. It's a topic for another time, but some people just, they can't. They're just so broke up. They say, I'm sorry, I can't. They hang up the phone. And of course, you understand. There are other people who want to talk about it. It's, almost, it's therapeutic for them. They've suffered this great, tragic, heartbreaking loss, and they want their loved one to be remembered in a newspaper article, and they, they like the idea of having someone to talk to. And so you have to be exquisitely sensitive. And that's what I had to be in the Lockerbie case. Anyway, Barr then took questions. Of course, they were not about Lockerbie by and large. They were about um, his stepping down and his finding of no widespread election fraud. And that's when he said, I'm not going to appoint a special counsel. I don't see any reason to appoint a special counsel. And that's when he said that uh, there was no basis to seize voting machines. And he also said... On another subject, that he sees no need to appoint a special counsel to investigate Hunter Biden. He thinks that's being adequately investigated by DOJ. So now Barr is no longer part of the inner circle. Uh, It's unclear, says the Post, how much pressure, this is what I was just uh, rambling about, Trump might put on his replacement, Jeffrey Rosen, now Deputy Attorney General, who will lead the department on an acting basis for those final weeks. 
At a minimum, says the Post Bar statement on Monday, gave Rosen cover not to appoint a special counsel, if that is his inclination. Now, um, Axios has a piece that goes even further. Jonathan Swan, one of the best reporters covering the White House, very well sourced, gets a lot of scoops. President Trump, in his final days, writes Jonathan, turning bitterly on virtually every person around him, griping about anyone who refuses to indulge conspiracy theories or hopeless bids to overturn the election. Several top officials tell Axios. The latest targets of his outrage include Vice President Pence, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, White House Counsel Pat Cipollone, Secretary of State Pompeo, and Mitch McConnell. Trump thinks everyone around him is weak, stupid, or disloyal, increasingly seeks comfort only in people who egg him on, to overturn the election results. We cannot stress enough, says Swan, how unnerved Trump officials are by the conversations unfolding inside the West Wing. So Trump is lashing out and everyone is in the blast zone. Uh, if you're not in the use the Department of Homeland Security or the military to impound voting machines camp, the president considers you weak and beneath contempt. He's fed up with his counsel, Cipollone. Some supporters of Cipollone are worried that Trump is on the brink of removing him and replacing him with a fringe loyalist. I guess that could happen. He's still president. Trump was upset about Pence because there was a Lincoln Project ad. These are the anti-Trump, never-Trump Republicans that claims, at least, that Pence is backing away from Trump. Um, I'm not sure that that's true, but Pence is has told others, or it appears to be, that on January 6th, the day that Trump wants some Republican members to contest the election results, which will go nowhere, guaranteed, uh, Pence would be the guy as vice president who would have to certify the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Biden did that in 2017. Gore did that in 2000. But that would be seen as a betrayal, according to Trump, as recounted in this Axios piece. The ultimate betrayal, says Axios. And just one other voice. Uh, conservative columnist Mark Thiessen, who's a Fox News contributor, uh, who's been a big Trump supporter for the last four years, has kind of broken with him on this. He said on Fox uh, yesterday, I believe, I agree with Attorney General Barr. It wasn't that long ago, this is on the special counsel thing, that all Republicans were basically against special counsels. We all thought the Mueller probe was an unjust fishing expedition, which ended up chasing nothing but a conspiracy theory. So all of a sudden, to turn around and start appointing special counsels, not one, not two, but three special counsels, would be a little hypocritical. Thiessen goes on to say, the Hunter Biden probe is being conducted professionally and impartially, and there's no evidence of systemic fraud that changed the result of the election. The Trump administration has lost every case in court, and to appoint a new special counsel to go on a fixing expedition, excuse me, a fishing expedition, would just be doing to Democrats what they did to him with the Mueller probe. That's Mark Thiessen's view. Story number two. Pat Robertson, also no longer backing the president on the election. The Reverend Pat Robertson on his 700 Club show uh, well, you know, going back to October, Robertson said God told him Trump would win. I guess something got uh, lost in translation there. Um, he also encouraged people to get out and vote, saying it's going to lead to civil unrest and then a war against Israel. So that was what Robertson said at the time. And even after the election was called for Biden, Pat said it isn't over yet. But yesterday... Um, after the 700 Club had a report about Trump might run in 2024, Pat Robertson said the following. Remember, by the way, uh, whether you like Pat Robertson, you don't like him, you think he's um, kind of out there as a televangelist, he ran for president in 1988. and was a pretty credible runner. He was never going to win the nomination, but, you know, he had a lot of support. 
He now says, with all his talent and the ability to raise money and grow large crowds, the president still lives in an alternate reality. He really does. People say, well, he lies about this, that, and the other. No, he isn't lying. To him, that's the truth. He said that Trump shouldn't run in 2024. That would be a mistake. That would be a sideshow, says Pat Robertson. And he goes on to say, look, uh, he, he did a good job with the economy, but he's very erratic, and he's fired people, and he's fought people, and he's insulted people. And he tells the president, you've had your day, and it's time to move on. So this is one of those, well, if you've lost Pat, lost Pat Robertson, maybe things aren't going so well for you on the right. You know, this is one of the most conservative political figures out there. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, story number three, I kind of um, teased it at the top when I talked about my appearance on Fox this morning. But the, what, what I was on to talk about was this. Is it unfair? Is it jumping the line? Is it selfishly putting themselves first for members of Congress to get the vaccine now? Well, it was decided by the CDC or whoever issues the guidelines that, you know, these 535 lawmakers could get the vaccine now. When you're talking about uh, Nancy Pelosi, who's 80, or Mitch McConnell, who's 78, or Steny Hoyer, who's 78, or Chuck Grassley, who's, I don't know, 79 or 80, of course you want them to get the vaccine now. But the decision was made not to discriminate on the basis of age that all members of Congress should get the vaccine now, should be eligible for the vaccine. So Ilan Omar is grandstanding in my view. She made some public statements. I am not going to take the shot because I am more noble and I think that the healthcare workers and nursing home residents should get it first. Well, first of all, we're talking about 535 people, so it's not a huge difference. Second of all, I, I do have some sympathy for her position because her father died from COVID-19 complications. So you can see where she might feel very strongly about the elderly getting it first. But basically, protecting the nation's leaders is a top priority. I mean, Joe Biden got the shot yesterday. He's 78 years old. He's the incoming president of the United States. Of course he should be vaccinated. Last week, he said, I don't know, I want to wait my turn, you know, but I think he was convinced, and especially after Pence got it, that it was okay. And here's the other thing. When Pence gets it, when Fauci gets it today on camera, when Azar gets it today, when um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez does an Instagram video about getting it, come back to her in a second. The symbolism of that is telling people who are worried about the vaccine, it's okay, it's safe, I got it, you can get it. What I don't like is the media partisanship. So Marco Rubio, for some reason, people have singled him out. And uh, on CNN, uh, Ana Navarro, anti-Trump commentator, said, oh, people like Republicans, like Rubio, they've been selfish and reckless. And last night, uh, MSNBC anchor Joy Reid, MSNBC host, uh, you know, who just loves Biden and loves Kamala Harris. She had an interview with the vice president-elect, and it was like the softest thing you can imagine. I'm so happy you're here. I'm so glad to be here. How does it feel? How do you feel to be the vice president-elect? But anyway, she did ask her this question, and Joy Reid says, well, you know, Marco Rubio, why should he get the vaccine? He was enabling bad behavior on COVID-19. And Kamala Harris, to her credit, said, no, I think all members of Congress, regardless of party, should get the vaccine. Because what are you going to do? You're going to have some morality commission that says, well, this person, you know, raised doubts about the vaccine. Um, Harris herself said, I don't trust Trump on the vaccine. I want medical experts to say it's safe. But, you know, what are you going to do? Some get it, some don't get it. According to what some arbiter, some moral arbiter says, well, you, you deserve to get it because your behavior was right. And you, 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 you should be at risk because your behavior was wrong. So, meanwhile, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez 
who's 31, so she's getting some flack. Uh, she gets a puff piece in Elle magazine. There's Elle magazine again. Um, but AOC made the point that these, it wasn't her decision that these 535 doses, and I guess the second round, were set aside for the people who were elected on Capitol Hill. And if she didn't take it, it would just go to storage. And so I understand that. It's easy to pander on this. It's cheap politics. It's just, you know, I you know, step aside. I don't approve of anybody getting this because we should do all the people in the nursing homes. Well, of course. But there are going to be tens of millions of vaccines available. And so I said on the air, and I say to you now, let's not do the pandering thing. Let's let members of Congress get it. Let's let the cabinet officers get it. Let's get the governors get it. Let's get the incoming president and vice president get it. It's just not that many. It's the politics of symbolism. You want to play politics with it? Be my guest, but I'm not going to go along. I'm just not. All right, now we'll move on to story number four. So last night, Congress finally did it. Both houses approved and sent to President Trump the $900 billion COVID relief legislation. And I gave you the summary of it yesterday. You know, it's $600 checks uh, per family member under a certain income level. It completely phases out after $99,000 a year. Uh, it's badly needed aid and loans to small businesses. And then there's money for vaccine distribution, food stamps, and other stuff. This was the compromise. And you've heard me go off on why this took nine months. And especially when the virus uh, surged, when the COVID-19, as it is now, uh, death toll up, record-breaking, um, hospitals running out of ICU space. September and October got so tied up with election politics that the parties couldn't compromise. And that was a shame. It was a disgrace, really. Well, what happens now? So the Washington Post says, well, Joe Biden, I mean, everybody has a story, says this is just a down payment. But does this take away Biden's ability to push something through when he moves into the White House? Biden's assessment, according to this Post story, echoes the view of many Democrats who see the bill as merely the beginning of a negotiation, not the end. They just said, basically, we can't wait. We got it. We got to do this before Christmas. Biden has said the talk should start as early as January. And this could be the first major legislative test uh, for him and his negotiating skills. But now that Congress, look how much pressure uh, it took for Congress to just barely squeak this across the finish line before adjourning for the year. Um, is it going to be easy to get another big bill worth, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars? No. And look, and there, there is a legitimate argument that you know, um, we're in a huge deficit and how much money can the government essentially print in order to fund this stuff? And the biggest single thing that Biden's going to want to get, uh, not the only thing, but the biggest single thing is aid to state and cities. It's, it's not just about bailing out, you know, the governors and the state lawmakers in, in these states and cities across America. It's about providing them enough money so they don't lay off cops and firefighters and teachers and don't have to shut down health facilities. That's where it would really hurt the economy and it would also hurt the effort to get everybody vaccinated. So uh, Biden uh, is probably going to also uh, ask for money to reopen public schools or help open public schools or reopen the ones that are closed. I think there'll be public support for that. But this is going to clash with the Republican Party. Mitch McConnell has said, he knows there will be additional negotiations, but it will be difficult to finalize another package. I mean, McConnell was not a huge fan of this bill. He thought it should be uh, at a much lower level of funding. 
Privately, says the Post, many in Biden's party agree it will be hard to persuade Republicans to reopen the debate after the protracted, often torturous negotiation that led to this last-minute deal days before Christmas. Um, Biden uh, said the other day, as things get worse, they're going to find there's an overwhelming need. So it really will come down to, because there's no deadline. And Congress, as you've seen a million times, Congress often can't do anything until there's a deadline. And often that deadline involves them going home for the summer, going home for Christmas. You know, don't underestimate how big an incentive that can be. But in January, February, or March, there is no deadline other than the deadline that more the economy will be hurting, more people could be losing jobs. But here's the thing. In March, this is a short-term bill. In the middle of March, there's 11 weeks of additional jobless benefits run out. If the economy is still in the tank then, and the uh, vaccinations that have taken place at that point haven't been enough or widespread enough to help bring the economy back, well, it seems to me that that would provide additional pressure. And it'd be a kind of a drop-dead date because a lot of these, you know, I think it's about 4 million people who've been out of work for many months, most of them through no fault of their own. Uh, that might create pressure for a more limited bill. Maybe you don't get another trillion-dollar bill. Maybe you get a $400 billion bill and try to target it to jobless benefits, uh, vaccine distribution, schools, and maybe some help for states and cities. We'll see. Story number five, I've been meaning to get to this, it's just been squeezed out by all the news, but it's a fascinating development in the area of sports journalism. So it turns out that a number of well-known sports pundits or sports writers um, are moving now to betting sites because Sports betting has become a lot more widespread since the Supreme Court in 2018 overturned the federal law that limited sports gambling, mostly to Nevada. So since then, I hadn't realized it had gotten this widespread, 19 state legislatures and D.C. have legalized sports gambling in some form. Another 27 states, I mean, they want in on the action, are moving toward legalization. So that creates a bull market for uh, websites or other kind of services that are geared toward people who like to bet on sports. It used to be this underground thing. You had a bookie, right? And you had to meet him in a dark corner and hand him the money or get paid off if you won the bet. Well, now it's going mainstream. So as an example, this is cited in a very thorough uh, Washington Post piece, uh, Chicago Tribune readers have known Teddy Greenstein as a big sports writer, 20 years, covers golf, covers the Big Ten, but now if they want his weekly college football picks or his insights on the Masters, they don't find it anymore in the Chicago Tribune. He left and went to an outfit called PointsBet, a sports betting company where he started recently as senior editor. And a lot of media outlets, big and small, have been losing jobs because of the economy, because newspapers are in trouble. So those, there are sports writers who need work. And I'm all in favor of journalists getting work. So these people, like Greenstein, is, are betting their career on the future of legal sports gambling. Now, this raises certain questions. So you can understand the gambling operators. They're wanting to, some of them are uh, hooking up or forming advertising partnerships with ESPN, NBC, CBS, Fox Sports, launched its own gambling company, Fox Bet. I confess I was completely unaware of this. Um, Barstool, the sports site, the owners there, uh, sold a large stake in a betting company. Uh, last month, Sinclair Television bought a stake in a gaming company, uh, Bally's, and will rebrand its 21 regional sports networks using the Bally's name. Well, that makes sense. Bally's a lot more famous. Um, but I guess it raises this question, if you're a sports better, 
are you get a great advantage by uh, subscribing to one of these sites or even just giving them traffic, which helps them stay afloat? Um, and are you disadvantaging people who like to bet on sports but aren't maybe paying a subscription fee for these sports betting sites so you don't know the latest inside dope on who's injured or why this football team or this basketball team or this baseball team or even this golfer is likely to have a bad day? Uh, or, you know, I mean, you pay people for these insights. So Greenstein, just to finish this up, he's not covering like a, uh, like a traditional sports reporter. He's making football picks every weekend, and he's producing videos about best bets for big events like the Masters and tutorials about what's the best way to bet. So I think this is going to be a booming business. So this is yet another shift to a different kind of journalism. I mean, maybe you call it new age digital journalism. Maybe you call it customer service. Maybe you call it, you know, selling your wares to the highest bidder. But nevertheless, there, I mean, there is a, a lot of people in this country who love to bet on sports. I've never been a big sports better myself. Uh, I'll, I'll join the office pools or something, but I don't want to put a lot of money uh, just because, you know, the, some team may tank or, or, or pull it out in the final seconds. I guess that, that makes, that's exciting for a lot of people. Uh, and some people have made a lot of money betting on sports, and some people have lost a lot of money betting on sports. Hope you have a great day. Stay safe. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe, as I've been mentioning recently, at Apple uh, iTunes, but also at Amazon Music, or you can get it on your Amazon device. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.